0: Hello, it's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet, welcoming you to another episode of the UK's number one veterinary podcast, Vet Chat. And I'm so pleased that I can introduce our next guest to you, somebody who I met at, at Nature's Safe event uh, just a couple of months ago, Richard Vine, who is the executive director for the School for Wildlife Conservation at the African Leadership University. Richard gave an absolutely fabulous talk at Nature's Safe, and we're going to definitely go over some of those elements uh, later uh, as we do the podcast. But just to give you a little bit of background, Richard is uh, a Kenyan, um, went to school in the UK, did his degree at Newcastle University in zoology, and have spent most of your career in what some people might have said in the past, Richard, is a is a dead end job doing conservation? How wrong they were! It, it is really uh, such an important area. It's, I suppose, you know, I look at the moment at the two existential threats to the world, and one of them is nuclear war. I can't do anything about that. The other is the the destruction of the planet's uh, environmental degradation, which means we no longer can really um, work and live on the planet. I think we all can do something towards that. Obviously people like yourself doing so much, but it's an individual responsibility. It's a corporate responsibility. It's also government responsibility, but first and foremost, as I've said, it's us as individuals that can make a difference, can't we?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, a hundred percent. You know, if, if if I look back on, on my career, um, when I, I've I've always been passionate about the the so-called world of conservation. I have a difficulty with the word the word conservation because it means to preserve and, and if you look it up in the dictionary, it, it it talks about preservation for the sake of preservation. But I think, you know, what's happened in, in in the past thirty or forty years since I told my father that I was going to become a conservationist and he said to me, What a waste of time. You're never going to earn any money. You're never going to be able to educate your children and so on and so forth. What's happened in that intervening period of time is is conservation has has morphed into something which is much more around the sustainable management of natural resources uh, for economic benefit um, based on the fact that without those resources, we humans would cease to exist. Um, It's really just as simple as that. And if you look at some of the horrific statistics that are beginning to emerge, based on surveys of natural populations, which have happened, been happening for the last 30 years, I mean, simple things, which has I know, been in the press in the UK recently, but the decline in insect populations and, you know, people who are not in my world will say, well, you know, does that really matter? But if I told you that, you know the value of crops pollinated by in- by insects across the world runs into many trillions of dollars and without those insects those crops would not be pollinated you begin to understand the value of nature and the value of biodiversity so i think what's happened is conservation has become much more mainstream um, than it has ever been before and that's that's based on a recognition that people are increasingly having which is and an understanding which is that you know actually biodiversity is fundamentally important for the safe and secure existence of humans going forwards are on this planet um, and without it we wouldn't be able to exist. Um, so so it's transformed in the last 30 or 40 years I would
0: say. Well, I know we're both fans of Kate Raworth the Oxford professor that you spoke so eloquently about during your lecture at the Nature Safe event and I think it's it's really important that the economic world on the whole has never placed the environmental cost and its profit and loss it's seen the environment as a you know as a an infinite resource that's never going to be actually lost and I think now there is a realization that we can actually exhaust the planets do you see yourself though as a person of hope that this ship can be turned around and that we can actually as you say not just conserve because mm-hmm. we're probably past that now but actually begin to regenerate again
1: Yeah, I do. I I fundamentally believe that's possible. I I think there's some good examples to demonstrate that that is the case. There are isolated examples from a biodiversity perspective where recovery has happened. And and that's the beauty of nature. If you give it a chance, it does regenerate. It regenerates incredibly quickly and it can continue once it's regenerated to provide the so-called ecosystem services that we've all come to rely on whether that's fish in the sea that we harvest or insects that pollinate our crops, and I think the other there's another good example which is talked about a little bit in the the um, Kate Raworth's um, donut theory of economics, which um, one one of the highlights of that is what happened to the ozone ozone layer, and those of us who are old enough will recall that the emerging hole in the ozone layer as a result of the use of chemicals, the name of which I've forgotten, was a massive potential catastrophe for planet earth and research was done the chemicals were identified they were eliminated from the products particularly fridges that used to use them and lo and behold all of a sudden the ozone the ozone layer this kind of amorphous thing that we don't really see has started to recover and close up again so you know that's um an illustration of the kind of recovery at scale which can happen if we humans put our minds to making it happen. So I believe there's, you know, we are exceeding ecological ceilings, so-called in donut um, theory, Um, wherever we're looking, wherever we look at the moment, those, those ecological ceilings are being exceeded and it can't carry on forever. But do we have the power and the ability as humans to recover that, to return ourselves to operating within the ecological ceilings that determine our ability to continue continue to live on planet Earth? The answer, I think, is a resounding yes. Of course, it's going to take some pretty fundamental changes to the way that we run our economic models. Um, and there's going to be um, a whole lot of change that has to happen in the way that people think, particularly at the level of government. Um, but I think that's beginning to happen. So my view is that whilst we've still got some hurdles to cross and some bridges to build... The future actually is looking far brighter now than it's looked for many, many years.
0: It's interesting when you talk about government, because in a sense, government on the whole usually is fairly short term. You know, they have a five year cycle. It's uh, populist as well. So it tends to look at what will win it the most votes. Do you see government as almost the last piece of the jigsaw in that we have to start with individuals and businesses and NGOs? Who actually sort of pull government to the table, or do you think government is becoming a lot more um, keyed into this and moving, you know, maybe quicker than I'm giving it credit for?
1: You know, you've only got to look what happened at um, COP 15 in December last year in Montreal. That that was a the the fact that they were able to reach an agreement about the recovery of biodiversity within a very short time frame frame. Is for me a signal to the fact that governments are now taking this seriously and I think it's because it's an existential threat Mm. to our current ability to exist on planet earth that is increasingly being recognized Um, and because it presents the loss of biodiversity presents such a threat to the uh, existence of human life on the planet the um, the ability of our current economic models to continue working and etc that you know, governments are having to take it very seriously. But I also think that just that there has been a movement over the past five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, perhaps, um, particularly amongst the younger generations, where they're beginning to understand that the not only is biodiversity important, but you know, just the fact that it's being lost at such a rate represents something that is unacceptable. I think in the minds of many young people, you know, the fact that. Um, Young people might be thinking that they will never be able to go scuba diving on a coral reef or see elephants in the wild like their parents used to be able to or whatever. I think, you know, is something which is Hmm. which is um, which is which is um, deeply important to 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 young people. And I think you've got so you've got you've got young people who are the future consumers um, who are demanding higher standards from the people they Uh, buy from the people who they consume from the companies who provide them with their products. You've got that pressure coming up, which companies are having to become sort of cognizant of and react to. Um, And at the same time, you've got this top-down pressure as the kind of existential global threat is increasingly recognized, which now governments are having to pay significant heed to. So you've got it coming from all angles, I think. And that's the reason that I say Mm. or believe that this is actually – you know, we've got to, in my, in my view, we've got to the kind of nadir, we've got to the bottom. And, and I think, you know, things will probably get worse yeah. for a little bit longer yet. But the rate of decline is, 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 I think, going to start to sharply decline. And then I think we're going to start to come out on the other side. And, and the measures we, we take now over the next five or 10 years are going to, you know, see a, a huge recovery and a regeneration of the natural world. And I think that's going to happen globally. And I think it's um, there's going to be more money available to make that happen. And it's going to become a kind of core thread of our existence in the way that we interface with planet Earth. And I think um, that will become inculcated within the way that humans think and the way that humans consume and the way that they... Um, Insist upon their governments doing the responsible thing and stewarding biodiversity in the environment far better than has been the case thus far. So, so look, I I I think there's um it's, it's still a, clearly a very complex space. Um, we're not there yet. The complexity of the new sort of financial instruments and tools which are being developed, um, and their ability to go to market in terms of financially resourcing the recovery of biodiversity, are still a long way off being something that we can apply effectively but the change and the thinking around the change and the resourcing to make it happen and the pressure from governments and regulation and consumer pressure uh, coming from the people who buy from the big companies who have the biggest impacts from a biodiversity perspective across the world is mounting so rapidly that you can only feel that we will be pushed as a collective across the planet in in, in into the right direction and that things will start to mm. uh, to recover as a result. So yeah, I'm confident that it's, it's it's beginning to happen, and I think the race of positive change is going to only accelerate.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I agree. It was really gratifying to see the high seas treaty signed just recently, off the back of COP15, and then of course America coming back into the climate uh, crisis fold by uh, I think it was 369 billion dollars in the Inflation Reduction Act. So America is is a huge part of the solution, isn't it? So seeing a government that actually recognizes climate change is is massive, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and but you know what's fascinating? I'm not sure if I should be talking specifically or about specific countries. What's amazing about America is if you actually go there and see some of the um innovative conservation or let's call it um sort of innovative innovative systems. Um, that have been developed to steward natural resources, including biodiversity, which have been in place for 20 or 30 years, way before the rest of of the world started to even really, really consider this space seriously. You know, America was ahead of the game and and in many respects it remains ahead of the game. When you talk about um, instruments such as easements on farming land where farmers would be paid by the state to manage their land in a manner that was um, supportive of... Maintaining good amounts of biodiversity. I mean, that was in America thirty years ago, um, way before anybody else started talking about it. So mm-hmm. you know, they they have a big influence on the rest of the planet. But actually, sometimes I think you've just got to dig a little bit deeper. And you know, we hear so many we hear so many stories about extinction and and everything everything you know that is happening from a biodiversity perspective is sort of wrong and, and and going in the wrong direction. The truth of the matter is that, you know, there is this new movement that is pulling us or pushing us into a different, much more positive direction. And importantly, a lot of the tools, including in places like America, but also Africa for that matter, that we're gonna need to make that happen, leave aside the financial instruments, are also beginning or have already evolved. They just now need to be applied at a scale at the scale that's going to be necessary to make a meaningful difference. So yeah, again, it's like it's like reading the newspapers, isn't it? You you only hit, ever sort of read doom and gloom, but actually there's a lot of really interesting good stuff that's mm. that's happening and it's been happening for many years.
0: And I think that's partly why I do the podcast because there is bad news sells papers and there's so much bad news about, but actually as you say like yourself, I'm I'm a man of hope. I think there are some really good stories and we're almost duty bound to go out and tell those stories aren't we
1: yeah we are um and and um you know there are there are plenty of them the the um we in in the school of wildlife conservation we have a a unit which we call the circular economy unit, which is all about, people think of it as recycling, but it's much bigger than just recycling. It's repurposing and it's Mm. designing products so that it can be repurposed, so that it can be repaired, so that it doesn't just get thrown away. And that, you know, that, in many people's estimation, that's becoming a multi or will become a multi-billion dollar industry. And I was talking to a guy the other day who's from Germany and there's technology now which has been developed which he had been instrumental in setting up in Brazil. Um, and it's all around uh, recycling of plastics in particular, which has been you know, challenging globally thus far. But the plant that they set up in Brazil has now got to a point where it's so profitable and where they're able to pay such a high price for old plastic, which they then remanufacture into new new plastic products that the, 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 the has become so profitable that the, the the price they're able to pay for the plastic is enough for people to be digging up landfills to recover the plastic that was buried to bring it to the factories and the plants that they've set up. So that's just a simple example. You never read about that kind of stuff in the news, but that technology exists out there. Um, and you see it in places like Kenya. You see people now walking along the sides of the road picking up plastic bottles that have been thrown out by People driving along in cars, and the reason they're picking them up is because that commodity that is now a commodity that's worth money. They can sell that mm. for quite good money um, you know uh, to earn a living um, so so again you wouldn't ever read about it in a newspaper, probably, um, but all that stuff is happening and it's evolving and it's evolving rapidly and of course that you know the recycling of plastic and the circular economy doesn't necessarily always link back into my area of speciality which is around biodiversity and the recovery of biodiversity but it's just an illustration of the point that i was trying to make which is i think there is a lot of good stuff happening and i think it's beginning to happen at a much more rapid pace than has been the case before and there's been a lot of evolution of good stuff for the past 20 or 30 years which is now beginning to be applied at scale and so you add all that up and superimpose upon that the pressure that i was talking about earlier from consumers the need for governments to take this seriously the extra resourcing that is coming into the sector the new thinking that is coming into the sector to the point that it's becoming attractive for young people trying to develop a career much more attractive than it was when i was starting out um, and and i think all of that adds up to i wouldn't call it a rosy picture because we're a long way from that but it's a much more rosy picture at least as far as the future is concerned than has been the case for many years
0: hmm. and I think as as you've said actually the more we silo it the worse it is because actually this is all holistic isn't it so plastic is definitely a part of um, you know it can be problems with biodiversity with the amount of plastic that's potentially in the ocean in the next 20-30 years so if we can make it economically viable that people are actually putting effort into taking plastic out of the ocean because they can make money from it, they're much more likely to do it than if there is no economic benefit. I I think, um, you know, I've had solar panels on my roof for the last 14 years because it was just the right thing to do. Whereas now, certainly in the UK, solar panels are becoming, certainly with the hiking prices due to the Ukraine and Russia conflict, it's now um, economically sensible to to look at solar panels particularly with our high interest rates at the moment and I've again going back to Kate's uh, book she talks a lot about demurrage which was something that happened in Germany in the 1930s and was very much around if you have money in the bank which is devaluing anyway because our inflation is at 10% isn't it so much more sensible to put it into something that's going to help to renew the planet than know leave it in a bank account where it's it's devaluing you know month on month almost
1: Mm, mm, absolutely you know it's um and and that's the transformation of the economic model that i think we're beginning to see you know it's um it's it's getting look at the carbon market i mean the value of course the carbon market is far from a perfect market (laughs) and it's received a lot of criticism in recent months um rightly frankly um, but that's you know, that's just the nature of these, the, the evolution of these markets, they're they're complex. Um you know, absorbing carbon, particularly using um sort of nature-based solutions, is is a complicated thing. Assuring the markets that what you're doing really is having an impact and you really are absorbing carbon and you can prove it is is complicated. Um but but the 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 point is that it's here to stay you know the um the value of a carbon credit has increased and is increasing dramatically and the uh, supply of carbon credits into the market cannot currently meet demand um so if you if you and and you know that's exactly why solar has become an affordable um, you know financially um viable option for people um it's It's because more and more pressure is being put upon the need to reduce the emissions of fossil fuels that translates into extra costs ultimately and with new technology and more efficiency in the solar space sooner or later the equation shifts and it becomes worthwhile financially with a good return on investment to 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 um to set up a solar system to run your home and the moment that happens is the moment the whole market shifts massively and it's exactly what is about to happen in the biodiversity markets. No one is yet talking about the biodiversity markets, but they're coming. Um, And they're coming for all sorts of different reasons. Mm. And they are way off being anywhere near something that we can talk about meaningfully right now, but in five years time, they'll be here. What does it mean in practice? What it means in practice is that me as a steward of biodiversity on my farm or my property or whatever it is, will be able to sell credits um, into the capital markets as an asset class uh, which will earn me huge amounts of money. And so it will be worth my while financially to grow biodiversity in order to earn money. Uh, whereas before, biodiversity has been as seen as a kind of encumbrance. You clear biodiversity to make way for a farm or you, know, you clear biodiversity to make way for industry or whatever it happens to be. Now, biodiversity is suddenly going to be something that's so valuable that actually it's going to pay people to look after it and to grow it. Um, because they can earn so much money from it. So there's the economic incentive that you were talking about. And I really believe that'll be five years down the road. People say I'm a little bit too optimistic. It'll be 10 years down the road, but I don't think that's true. And the reason I don't think that's true is because of the urgency of addressing this problem, which is now increasingly you know, recognized as being an incredibly urgent problem that has to be addressed. Um, you know, when you look at the targets that were set by COP15, these are very ambitious targets. But that's a reflection of the necessity of what has to happen, because in, in nature, you have these these things called tipping points. One of the famous tipping points is the cod fisheries off the east coast of America, which collapsed due to overfishing about 60 or 70 years ago. And people thought, well, if we just leave it for 10 years, it will recover. Well, it never did recover. Um, To this day, it hasn't recovered. And that's an example of a tipping point. So we're pretty close to a lot of tipping points from a nature perspective. And we can't really afford to go beyond those tipping points Mm. because then we will be in trouble because things will be lost and they will be permanently lost. So that's the urgency. And, And that's why I think things will happen far more quickly than people think. The
0: webinar vet has been serving the veterinary community with CPD for over a decade. But did you know we offer so much more than just that? Our sister company, sympathy Vets, have veterinary jobs all in one place. We serve the full veterinary team, providing permanent and local roles in practice, whilst also providing a simple and transparent solution to IR35 where needed. We also care about the environment. That's why we plant trees for every one of our practice members. To find out more, please visit simplyvets.com today. I think it's really fascinating, you know, talking about the carbon markets and and evolution and for me with companies as well, you know, we're a carbon negative company. So we calculated our carbon and then offset double. And I know there are, you know, potential issues. We've also obviously got to reduce our energy because energy usage goes up every year. We've got to stop doing that. But, I think for people, it is a start and they, as, as we've said before, they need to see that they're doing something. And obviously there are some, you know, dodgy uh, carbon credit people, but that has to be better than doing nothing. For example, as a, you know, carbon negative company, we have uh, taken a, a part of the Amazon rainforest and therefore, it, you know, hopefully if it's uh, pro- properly monitored, that's not going to be cut down. Um, so I agree with you that I don't think it's the complete solution, but we have to start somewhere. The other interesting one is a lot of businesses now, veterinary businesses say, well, we use sustainable energy. You know, we've gone with a, a an electricity company that guarantees 100% sustainable energy. And I have to go back and say, but as this market grows, we need more people to put solar on the roof because obviously more energy will be needed for that sustainable market, we can then, therefore, be able to keep oil and gas in the ground, which is what we need to do to help with all the carbon situation. So, we have to look at it in a much more, as you say, complex way. It's not quite the simple solution, is it? As you pointed to, no,
1: it's not. And and you know, um, whilst the carbon, as I said earlier, whilst the carbon, you know, the carbon situation at the moment is is full of flaws, full of problems. That will evolve out. Um, you know, it just takes time. People mm. don't invest into buying a carbon credit ultimately and unless they can be pretty sure that they're not going to be accused of greenwashing, they're not going to be embarrassed to their customers or whatever. Mm. So the pressure will come to make sure that the carbon markets and the um, sort of accreditation of carbon projects, whatever they may be, uh, is done properly. I think, I think. Um, you know, the, the the point is this, that you, you know, carbon, carbon is not biodiversity. Um, so you could, um, you could, for example, plant a forest of non-indigenous trees in Kenya where there would be zero biodiversity, but you would be absorbing a huge amount of carbon. Yeah. I think you've got to ask the question, well, you know, in order to, which, by the way, is something they're talking about at the moment, um, or why not recover indigenous forests? And reap the reward of biodiversity in the process for all of the ecosystem services mm-hmm. that it provides to us, in other words, that's where I think the clever thinking needs to start coming in. um You know there has been this rush to carbon, yeah. if I can put it that way, um and often that's come slightly at the expense of any other yeah. thinking around what else could be done in the process, and if we can kind of marry the recovery of biodiversity and the proper stewardship of biodiversity together with. Um you know, the rush to carbon, the absorption of 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 excess carbon or at least keeping carbon out of the atmosphere then we 're winning on all fronts um and so when you look at kate roweth 's exactly. ecological ceiling she 's not just she 's not talking just about climate change or um uh, global warming as a result of excess carbon she 's talking about a range of other measures around ecological ceilings. And I think that's what we need to sort of focus on, is how do we do this in a way that is financially efficient, that um, doesn't just focus on one particular aspect, but actually uses all of the ingenuity that we have available to us to, to address everything that we need to address. And, you know, nature is a powerful tool for being able to do that. Mm. It can absorb carbon, it can regenerate biodiversity, it can provide insects for pollinating crops, it can do all sorts of different things. And I think we need to look at it on that basis. We need to look at it in the whole. Um, And then just one final point, I think, is really quite interesting is the whole, you know, someone said to me the other day, and they're a carbon expert, they said, if we're still dealing in carbon credits in 20 years time, then we're all in a mess because it means we're still emitting too much carbon. So, Hmm. you know, I don't think it's going to be enough in five or 10 years to be offsetting carbon um, because, you know, you're you're, really... Number one, it's an extra expense to your business, which if you could avoid, you probably want to avoid. Why, why buy carbon credits if you don't need to because you're already carbon negative or carbon neutral? So I think actually what will probably happen is people will be still pushed down the route of carbon neutrality at worst, carbon positivity at best. Um, so the carbon market may start to disappear in 10, 15 years time because we're now, you know, we're not having to trade in credits. Um, or at least it will perhaps reduce in size because there will be some industries which which can't avoid emitting carbon. Um, but actually, that I think will be replaced by what I've tried to explain, which is this kind of market in biodiversity, um, which will be playing a playing a similar role, but on a, on a on a much more kind of holistic, grander, more important scale, if I can put it that way.
0: No, I think it's a really good point, Richard. We're running the uh, veterinary discussion forum, Veterinary Green Discussion Forum, later on this year and going to be mainly talking about biodiversity because it is seen as this um younger less important brother than than carbon and, and climate change but if if we're planting all the wrong trees in all the wrong places uh, we end up just with a, as you say a sterile jungle where there are no birds or no animals in, and then that isn't that can't be right i, I was at another talk and uh, the, the person was talking about um The Gabon rainforest and actually having elephants in that forest it absorbed more carbon than if elephants weren't in which sounds you know fascinating but having that complete ecosystem is so much more important than just sticking trees in and letting them kind of get on with it without putting all the other things in.
1: A simple example would be a lot of the work that is going on all over the world to replant mangrove forests on the coast on on coastlines um, you, you you would always want to replant with mangrove. Yeah. And the reason you'd want to replant with mangrove is because that forms and has historically formed the nursing areas for young fish and et cetera, et cetera. Well, of course, that then supports fish populations and people who depend upon fish for their livelihoods and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the point I'm trying to get to. You know, if you're going to do it because you want to absorb carbon, which is the primary reason that people started to replant mangrove forests, um, you know five or ten years ago um well do 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 it sequester carbon in a way that is going to give you many other benefits you know um, um from an ecosystem services perspective in the case of mangroves the provision of fish populations that can be fished
0: i know um finally we were talking about uh at the nature's safe that you're also the custodian of the last two northern white rhino that is i suppose uh an indication of how important what we're doing and what we're tr- all trying to do you obviously more than most to to protect not only those big species but but all species somehow the world is a bit poorer when we lose as we say species every day ones that we haven't even recognized ones that have never been actually you know scientifically recognized that those species are going it's um uh, For me, it's a tragedy, and I think it's a structural sin if our systems are set up in a way that allows this to happen. So it's satisfying to see that we're perhaps moving into a much more hopeful future.
1: Yeah, um, you know, the northern white rhinos is a a terribly sorry tale. um, The fact that we're down to the last two and that if they're going to be recovered as a species, that's going to cost millions of dollars is a signal, frankly, to our stupidity but um and and for you know the 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 thing i think that people need to recognize is recognizes is that whilst northern white rhinos the last two garners huge amounts of global publicity and etc etc the truth of the matter is that this is just a signal to what is happening across all species globally i mean we don't even know how many species exist on planet earth there are some people who think there could be 30 million species well if approximately if we of all if we know that of all the recognized and known species approximately fifteen to twenty per cent are between categorized as between endangered and critically endangered and you extrapolate that out, that probably means that something like six to possibly even as much as ten as many as ten million species many most of which we don't even know exist are also threatened with extinction. It's a simple It's a simple mathematical formula. And, you know, again, the stupidity of that is that wildlife and, 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 um, plant and animal species, I can't remember what the exact figures are, but it's something like 15 to 20% of all of the medications that we use as humans to combat cancer, some very successfully uh, to combat, you know, more common ailments and et cetera, et cetera, are derived from, from, from animals and plants. Well. 30% Thirty percent of those could be about to go extinct, which means you know we're losing just a bank of billions of years' worth of evolution which could be incredibly useful for mm-hmm. humans going forward so you know whichever way you cut it the way we 're living at the moment is unsustainable we 're consuming more than we're consuming more natural capital than the planet can afford to provide to us it's affecting our ability to live on the planet it's affecting our ability to um, to continue to produce in many respects, and it's potentially curtailing our ability to, um, to live good lives as humans in the future, so all of it's stupid, and, and it demands, therefore you know a rethink, and uh, you know, again, that, that is what I think is beginning to happen. We must always remember that ninety nine percent of every single species that ever that has ever existed on planet Earth, Earth has gone extinct. Um, think of dinosaurs. Um, so extinction is a normal process it's just the current rate of extinction that we're seeing and and the costs of pulling stuff back once you've driven it to the brink of of complete extinction so the northern white rhinos you know if that costs us 20 million dollars to get a herd of northern white rhinos established in the um, democratic republic of the congo in 20 or 30 years time that's 20 million dollars that could have been spent uh, if we just properly stewarded the natural world much more effectively for the benefit of humans and for the benefit of our ability to live on planet earth. So so um yeah, yeah you know, things have to change. I think we we've recognized that. Um the extinction crisis is definitely um something that has to be reversed because it's having a hugely detrimental effect on humans.
0: But I think it's great to see, you know, people like yourself so involved in it. us also as individuals, you know, as vets. I think people listening to this vets and nurses We can have a big impact on what we do in our practices, what people see us do. Uh, I think it is becoming more of a movement. You know, 90% of vets want to do something about sustainability. But as you said earlier, we're not always sure exactly what to do. But I think those little individual acts, and they may seem small, like having uh, pollination, uh, you know, wildflower in, in the front of your practice that helps with pollinators all of these actions can make a massive difference, can't they?
1: It's ginormous um It's very difficult to think of a sort of similar example, but um I'm just going back to the wildflower example that you gave, and i again, I can't remember the exact numbers, but if everybody set aside of all the gardens in Britain, if everybody set aside ten percent think maybe it's fifteen percent a relatively small amount of their land as a kind of wildflower me- meadow to help pollinators and To provide habitat for insects and other things, the 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 theory is that um, the the there would be a kind of exponential impact to to populations of you know those animals, particularly insects, which thrive in those kinds of habitats. So, in other words, by setting aside ten percent, you don't just get a doubling of insect populations; you get a tripling or a quadrupling. Um, And there was a very interesting. very interesting article, I think it was from New Zealand, where there are lots of, they they have a system around their shores, which are pretty long shores, where they have lots and lots and lots and lots of very small, complete no-take areas uh, within the coastline, Um, none of them particularly big, but all of them adding together to become far greater than the sum of their parts in terms of their ability to support biodiversity. So, yeah, you know, it's small stuff that needs... Changing more often, big national parks are kind of grandiose statements which of course are important um, and by the way, America does that better than most, but it's the little things it's the little yeah. actions which are often very small and often completely almost insignificant that we and we as individuals take that will make the biggest difference
0: Richard thank you so much It's been a real thrill chatting to you and uh, for being such a man of hope, which I think is so important we need more and more people who are hopeful we we are um, creative creatures and we often are very good at solving problems and i like you believe that we can turn this ship around but this is now the decisive decade and it's great to see people like yourself doing such fabulous work so thank you so much for all that you do
1: thank you very much for having me it's um it's been really interesting chatting so thank you
0: thank you richard thanks everyone for listening uh, do think about it you know this is the time to plant your wildflower meadows we we were giving out flyers at the BSAVA congress that were that had wildflower seeds in them i know some of you may be listening who've got those so do if you um have them and they're successful do take photographs because those sort of images bring hope to us all so thanks everyone for listening thanks again richard for taking part and we look forward to seeing you on a podcast very soon bye-bye